This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast, there is some drama at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, and we're going to talk about it. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, <laughs> looking out at a frontier of hope and possibility. In action. Party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me tonight are Rail Splitter Nick. What's up, podcast, internet, cell phone, car, listeners? And Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, all you awesome Rail Splitters. All right, so uh, we did promise part two of our coverage of the 1864 election, which we will deliver on, of course, but there was some news in the Abraham Lincoln world that we thought was worth taking a little bit of time to talk about normally, or or occasionally at least, we open up the show with uh, Lincoln in the news, but tonight or today or whenever you're listening to this, we did want to at least address some of the issues surrounding, uh, surrounding uh, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum because it is definitely an issue I think that is impacting quite a lot of Lincoln enthusiasts out there. Uh, so if you're not in an area where Springfield is accessible to you, I still think that this will be an interesting episode for you because we're talking about a lot of different artifacts about museums in general and how they work, um, and especially as it relates to this particular museum um, and where there might be some lessons learned from this whole fiasco um, and really to kind of chat about some potential problems that the Lincoln world is, you know, maybe on the brink of, maybe not with uh, Lincoln artifacts. And then, of course, uh, just kind of talk about the situation itself and then... Um, you know, do the best we can to make sense of the situation. Uh, so basically what we have is there was a news story. I don't know. When was it released? Like maybe Thursday of last week? Thursday Friday? or Friday. I think actually it was Friday. Cause I remember wor- I was working at, uh, I work at a high school. Nick and I work at the same high school. I was working the, uh, our high school football game. And I got a text message from rail splitter Nick that said, Dr. Cornelius is fired. And I was anticipating looking at a news story that said the traditional uh, Dr. Cornelius has resigned to spend more time with his family or um, something of that nature where, you know, the resignation that comes that um, shows evidence that perhaps it wasn't a resignation. But so that's kind of what I was anticipating that it would be one of those. No, it was a straight up firing. Like they made no issue um, about the fact that he was asked to leave. And they used the word fired several times in the articles that were posted, um, mostly by St. Louis or St. Louis, mostly by Springfield um, publications, but then it was kind of picked up nationwide as well. So I don't know if all of you out there in Rail Splitter Nation kind of saw that. Um, I did see it pop up online a few places, but Dr. Cornelius was fired he was his title i believe was curator of the lincoln collection um but he was also very much the face um of the the place the face of the collection and the face of the museum he was kind enough to come on our show and um 
I still believe that that was one of our stronger episodes. Um, he, he is a true, true Lincoln scholar and definitely knows his stuff. But it sounds like there's some maybe more to the story. So um, we have not talked to anybody at the museum, uh, and we have not talked to Dr. Cornelius since he was on our show. So we are going with the information that we have from the press and what we've kind of discovered from it. But we wanted to talk about this situation. So Nick actually put quite a lot of work into putting some pretty detailed show notes together. So Nick, I'll turn it over to you to kind of fill us in on where the situation came from and the weirdness that's kind of surrounding the whole ordeal. Yeah, I, I would like to give Eric Lee a shout out because I actually saw it on the Facebook group. Uh, Eric Lee posted an article um, kind of doing it. That's where uh, I saw it first. So if you are not part of the Facebook group, you should join it because you get the inside scoop. Um, yeah, so the big issue is over Lincoln's famous stovetop hat, which I guess there are, um, well, I guess it depends how you count the one in Springfield. Uh, but there are two others that are out there. So one is in the Smithsonian and one is out in Vermont, uh, Vermont, uh, a state that once belonged to Robert Todd Lincoln. So uh, sounds like a, a real splitter road trip right there. <laughs> Basically, this comes from the collection, the, ta- uh, the Tapper collection, um, which was bought by, what is it, the Lincoln, it's the Lincoln Institute. Mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln Institute, which is a separate entity from the museum um, down in Springfield. And it was so basically Tapper purchased it in 1990 for an undisclosed amount. And the Lincoln Foundation um, then purchased Tapper's collection and that being kind of the prized possession of the collection. And that was done for twenty three million dollars. And that was for over fourteen hundred artifacts. And the hat was valued at $6.5 million, um, at one point. So, and then, so th- they were under the impression that it was Lincoln's. They put it in the museum, um, and it's been on display. I don't know, boys, have you ever seen it on display there? I have. It's quite, uh, quite moving. The signature element of this particular hat, and I don't know if it's the same of the other two, but there are two um, finger... Uh, he, they said he, they say he tipped his hat so often as was customary of the time, uh, but he always tipped his hat in exactly the same fashion. So where he grabbed his hat to tip it, um, you know, most often probably to women, um, wore out the the pelt. I guess it's a kind of I think it's is it beaver pelt. It's I think. beaver. It's yeah. beaver pelt. Yeah. Um, so like he he wore down the pelt, so it's very distinctly discolored in two uh, fingerprint fingertip size um, kind of discolorations, which is kind of neat, and it kind of humanizes the piece a little bit. Um, so I have seen the hat, and, it, and they always display it or displayed it or however they're going to do it in the future um, in the treasures of the museum um, part, which is that kind of it's like a two concentric circles, one inside the other, where they bring out uh, very um, item, items from the collection, essentially, um, in the same place where they've had the Gettysburg Address when they brought that out. Um, so the hat is very, very cool. It's um, uh, it's kind of more, it's a little more brown than I think you would anticipate, mostly probably due to age, uh, but it's kind of like a blackish brown um, and it is quite tall. Um, you know, Lincoln was a tall man, you know, it's, um, very much, a, 
a stovetop hat. So yeah, very, very nice artifact. Um, when they display it, they talk about the fingerprint indentations. They talk about a little bit of the history of the hat. Uh, they also do um, address that it's not 100% verified that it's his, but they f feel pretty confident or felt pretty confident that it was. So, um, yes, it, it, when they put the hat out, if they put the hat out again or whoever purchases it, if that person puts the hat out, definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, and there's a couple other things, too, that they, you know, used to say that they believe that it was Lincoln's. You know, it was his hat size. Um, uh, it was not a common style hat for that time period. And as uh, Jeremy brought up, uh, the wear and tear on the hat is very similar to maybe how Lincoln would have used it. Uh, the backstory behind the hat um, and how it got into possession of a citizen was there's kind of two stories. There's a story that kind of surrounds 1858 that Lincoln gave the hat to a Southern Illinois farmer as a token of gratitude. And I believe it was believed to be at the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate. And then you have another story that came out about, I don't know, 100 years later, uh, where the story was that that farmer actually went to D.C. to visit Lincoln, and then that's the time he got the hat, which would have taken place sometime after 1861. So there's kind of two tales there to how it got into this family's possession. Um, so those are the two tales that I was able to find. Um, all right, so the hat was on display. The people at the museum, the Lincoln Foundation, they felt very confident that it was Lincoln's hat. And then the questions pop up in 2012. The Chicago Sun-Times ran a piece um, kind of bringing up this su suspicion about the hat. Um, you, know, you know, when you're trying to get these artifacts certified or, you know, I don't know, verified, I guess, you know, there's, to be 100% certain, you know, you need a trail. Um, so you need to do your due diligence there and have it. So the Sun-Times brought that um, kind of up that they didn't believe that that was done. So then that kind of led to a collection of dominoes falling down. The Illinois Tom, uh, Times jumped on this story. They suggested DNA testing, um, believing that there had to be, you know, maybe it was some piece of Lincoln's dandruff, which is kind of fascinating in itself. Um, so I don't know. I mean, did Lincoln have dandruff? I guess everybody probably had dandruff. Back today's then. episode of The Rail Splitter brought to you by Head and Shoulders. <laughs> it's not, not at all. We, are, we have no corporate affiliations. That was a joke. So then the, the board, uh, they debated whether to do this. And there is in, I think it was Illinois Times, I looked back at one of the things, and they had Cornelius was quoted as he, this is a debt issue, this is a non-issue. Dandruff, bone, hair, it is not there. So I believe he was, uh, he was outspoken at the meeting that uh, the DNA testing um, wasn't worth doing. Then there were some other historians from the Smithsonian Chicago History Museum. They did some research to try to find, um, verify if it was Lincoln's. And a quote I found from them, it was for an artifact of such prominence and one that the museum wishes to highlight and promote the current documentation is claimed that the hat belonged to President Lincoln. So kind of based on the information that they had and looking into it, um, that is a conclusion that they drew. Um, supposedly, according to the current foundation vice chairman, Nick Calm, I'm assuming that's how you say it, um, he said that the museum was 
told about this report, 2014. Uh, then you have 2015, things get crazy. So supposedly, according to these stories, um, the FBI came to the museum, did a DNA test, two DNA tests on the hat. So basically they took DNA from the handkerchief and gloves and his shirt from his assassination. And there were two tuffets, which I found is a fascinating word <laughs> that they use, uh, Lincoln's hair. So they probably, I, I don't know how DNA testing works, but I guess they used that, um, took some stuff from the hat, ran two tests, and it came back inconclusive. According to the newspaper and the most current reports is that these FBI guys didn't just roll up an FBI wagon or car or whatever it is and go, hey, we're here to get the hat. It was done very discreetly to the point where they were kind of supposed to present themselves as a news crew to come in. And according to the reporting, Dr. Cornelius seems to be the only one at the museum that was in the know of this. So this is kind of where things become suspicious or interesting or questions arise. Um, so that happened in 2015. Then 2018, obviously the foundation, we've talked about this. Um, they took out a loan to buy this collection. And now the they still have $9.7 million. Right, hold on they real have, quick. If I can yeah. just jump in real quick. So... So those, as the story goes that you just told, so basically Dr. Cornelius arranges for this FBI DNA analysis to be done apparently on his own without consulting anyone else and makes a secret of it. So Mary, I know you've worked in the museum field at various points in your career. How It sounds very strange to me. How strange mm -hmm. is that? Or how out of the norm is that? Would that be for you if you were working in the museum industry? It would be, I think, very out of the norm. Like, I know at the museum I worked at, you know, when artifacts came in, they first of all had to have significance to Huron County, uh, the county I live in. And, you know, we had some stuff in our collection that the provenance was iffy and all that. But, yeah, it just, it, 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 it was kind of shocking for me to read all this as someone who's worked in the museum field before. Well, in, in just, I live across the street from um, our town's museum, Rockford's museum. It's called Midway Village. Um, and I know Nick's done some work with the folks over there. And I was just emailing them about a project I'm working on today. But I was kind of just doing some real preliminary research. Like their board of directors there, and this is a very tiny museum, not nationally known. You know, their board of directors has got like 12 or 12 or 15 people on it they've got a pretty good staff like even at that place it would be very strange to have an fbi you know like it's just like for the fbi <laughs> you know the yeah, fact that, that they're even involved at all is weird and then the clandestine nature of the whole thing it's just so strange um and the vibe that i'm getting from this whole ordeal is not as much that um, shady things were going on. It's just that, like, man, it's just so strange. So, sorry to yeah. interrupt what you were talking about, Nick, but I was just wondering, like, is it as strange in the museum field as it feels, or would that be something like the curator's job is to, you know, establish veracity for all of these artifacts? Is that just something he would do and he wouldn't really have to tell anybody? Because my gut is telling me that would be absurd. 
<laughs> but well, you, um, you have to be. I mean, in in Canada, well, at least you know a lot of museums in Canada, like you know, they're public funded, so they're like some of them funded by taxpayer dollars. Like you have to be accountable uh, for those artifacts, and the equivalent to the FBI in Canada would be CSIS. And I don't. When I was, you know, in school um, for museum studies, you know, there weren't any cases I read about where CSIS rolls up and. You know, I was doing DNA testing on on something that has been found. You know, like first prime minister of Canada's code or something like that. Like where the provenance is being questioned, just as an example. Like I don't recall anything like that. So there's not like Mounties just like beating the door down to do some <laughs> forensic no, testing. <laughs> no, I mean I think the most controversial thing that was found at the museum that I worked at was there was a skull found in the collection. And it was just repatriated to the um, the indigenous group that it was from. Wow! They just called in. <laughs> what what the heck is this? Oh, that's a human skull. Repatriated. Yeah. Like, there's been cases like that all the time, but it's not. You know, CSIS doesn't show up at all. F- equivalent mm. to the FBI. Sure. Like, no, not like yeah, that. Yeah, it just seems very strange. Okay, Nick. So, yeah. continuing back to our story. Well. Let's continue with the strange. So going back to the hat, 1988, we uh, there was a former state historian, Thomas Schwartz, um, and he borrowed the hat from the original owner. This was before Tapper bought it. And at that time, supposedly Schwartz estimated the value of that hat to be $15,000. So that was 1988. And then you jump to 2007, where it was valued at 6.5 million. So it's like, how did we get such a jump in the mouth? And we don't know what Tapper paid for it. Uh, you know, Miss Tapper, it was for an undisclosed amount. And another thing that's kind of odd is the Tapper collection. Tapper herself was on the American Lincoln Foundation board in 2007 when it was purchased so you know so she was on a board that made a decision to purchase six and a half million dollars no 23 million dollars of her collection i I'm, I'm guessing she recused herself from any votes on that decision i can't see how she wouldn't but still it's that's a shady. little strange that's, yeah that's, that's shady just the recuse, you know, I don't even think I knew what that word meant three years ago, just for the record. <laughs> hey, man, we're, so, all, we're lifelong learners around here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks to the Trump administration, <laughs> I've learned quite a few words. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely – I think the big question is there, how does it go from being estimated at 15000 to in the millions? You would think some type of research came in, really proven that point, and then if that did happen – why has this research not been shared with others who are trying to verify, um, you know, how authentic this hat is? That's very odd, I find. I, I agree. Something like that should be on the public record, you know, like. The only possible explanation I think that there could be, and I don't think it's a very good one, is that, like, in reality or practically speaking, there's no real difference between the importance of Abraham Lincoln's hat over his boots or a tie. You know, like 
But the mythical Lincoln, the caricature of Lincoln, you know, it's the top hat and the beard. And we obviously don't have the beard, for which is good. We don't, we shouldn't have the beard. But like, it's become such an iconic identifier of Lincoln that now I think it carries more weight. So if he had one pair of boots that he always wore, which I know he didn't, but let's say, you know, the hat's still going to be more valued because nobody talks mm-hmm. about Lincoln's boots. So I'm thinking of like the, there's a display in Galena for Grant and they have a boot and a chewed up cigar. And that just fits Grant so well that those are probably really sought after artifacts as opposed to, you know, a pocket watch or something. Um, obviously, that would also be very sought after, especially if it, if it belonged to Lincoln. But the hat is just on a whole nother level. The only explanation I could come up with for a vast undervaluing of the hat would be if somebody kind of disregarded that and said, like, well, articles of clothing for Lincoln tend to go for about $15,000. And this is an article of clothing. I think that's a stretch. It's pretty absurd. I don't think that's what happened, but that's the only rational explanation I could come up with that would explain why that is. Because I do think that that's the case. Like if, if I'm sure there's a pair of Lincoln boots out there somewhere, or even his axe, that is just not quite. It just doesn't. Even with the nickname the Rail Splitter, it just doesn't have the same prestige as the top hat for no reason other than how Lincoln has been portrayed forever and ever you know and who knows how much he you know he probably never ever wore the top hat inside probably never wore it when he was delivering a speech so um or very rarely wore it when he delivered a speech so um how the top hat has come to resemble lincoln is probably a conversation for another day but i think that probably plays into the valuing of the hat and why we're so obsessed with it and why the fbi came in to investigate it and why cornelius was trying to do all this stuff um because of the myth and the the prestige around just the top hat itself. Yeah. And, you know, if I was just looking at the story and it was just like this jump in price, you know, and then, you know, the tappers on the board and they bought it, it, it's definitely odd and you kind of wonder, but, you know, at the end of the day, that doesn't really make the thing that makes it is, you know, said, we can't pay the loan that we have $7 million and basically asking for them to cover a share of this, but yet they have been keeping and they are selling this collection around the top hat. Like the top hat is the prize of this collection and they want the Illinois, you know, us as taxpayers, you and me, Jeremy here, uh, you know, to help cover the cost for this. And they're putting online fundraising, but they're not being upfront about the verification of the hat. To me, that kind of pisses me off about all of that. Yeah, that that would make me, if I lived in Illinois, that would make me angry too. You know, I would want to know that they're it's like, well, then prove to me that this hat is what it is. Um, but, you know, reading these articles and the evidence that's been presented, it it is very questionable. And the museum, I think, has to have that due diligence to be able to tell the public, especially if they're, you know, looking for money, like, yes, we can definitely prove that these artifacts are genuine. Yeah. And it's, it's an unfortunate situation. Like I I take Indiana Jones aside of this whole thing, like that belongs in a museum. Like it belongs, things like that should belong to the people Mm -hmm. of this, of either the people of the state of Illinois or the people of the world or the people of the United States. Like the collector market has driven up prices on a lot of this stuff. Um, to a point where 
there's just no way to say like, you know, and I, and who am I to tell, you know, someone like, Hey, you know, your cherished possession that's a Lincoln artifact shouldn't belong to you. It should belong in a, you know, belong in a museum. But, you know, people with a lot of disposable income build these collections up and they have more money than they know what to do with in a lot of cases, not all cases by any means. Um, but they, you know, they, 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 they price museums out of the market. So now like museums that don't have, like it's very difficult for museums to get new stuff because it, they're, they're priced out of the market by a lot of collectors. Um, so it's challenging. And yeah, I agree that, that I as a taxpayer shouldn't have an additional burden because the, because the demand or, you know, supply and demand is dictated that these are very expensive items, but it should be in a museum. Like it should, that should be for school children to see. And for, you know, like that copy of the Gettysburg Address should be there for people, freedom loving people to see, um, you know, so, and, and that's, and that's a great story because that was donated from a penny drive from school children and then a bunch of money from Marshall Field. It was a multimillionaire, obviously. Um, but yeah, so how do you find that happy medium? And I think they were on the path to doing that by purchasing a huge dollar amount collection at the creation, really, or right around the time the museum was really created, and then trying to sustain that over time and then raise the money over time. And they were close, and they kind of have, you know, when payments have come due, they've been close, but they've been able to make it work until now. And now they're in a really precarious situation because the museum is extremely popular. Their, you know, membership is up, attendance is up, millions of people a year. Um, it's very well reviewed. But they can't afford that the next payment of this collection, and they're really in a bind and looking to get help. And I think the recent drama around it seems to be playing into that. Like, I, like it just seems, it to me, it seems too much of a coincidence that they're running into all of these problems with paying for the collection at the same time that the curator of that collection was in a lot of hot water. It's it, there's just a lot going on there. And uh, the museum claims that he was not fired because of that this hat situation. Um, so that is what they've claimed. And he does, there, there is some history of him, you know, um, having some run-ins with the higher-ups. 2012, he was suspended for kind of a series of incidents, um, being unprofessional towards, you know, a museum client, disres disrespectful, sarcastic, unprofessional comments, directed at the director of the museum. Um, he got angry at the museum staff installing um, an exhibit. It was hostile and verbally abusive. That was 2012. You know, those stories, you, you know, with a situation like that, you could always sell that a lot worse than what it was or make it sound a lot better, depending on the words you use. Two, 2015, though, he was, um, or 17, I believe, suspended 15 days for insubordination. And Cornelius was actually on, put on administrative leave starting March of this year. So I remember when we went to that, um, the Lincoln get-together, the reenactors, um, what was the terminology they used for him not being there to give his address? Something uh, came up, I think is the official. We're at the Lincoln Presenters Conference in Freeport, and they were very gracious hosts, and we really enjoyed our time there. But uh, they officially uh had a lit last minute change in guest speakers and it was i can't remember the date but it was super close to when this was all going down um something came up at the museum and then of course we were like "Ooh, 
I wonder if they just got a huge donation or maybe they came across some artifact or, you know, like, cause we're trying to think like what emergency situation could pull a curator of a museum away from an engagement. Like I have to do museum work cause they made it very much sound like not, not they didn't say family emergency. They didn't say medical issue. They said uh, something came up at the museum. So we're like, you know, everyone's like, ooh, what could it be? Uh, and it turned out that uh, no one, and now looking back on it, I'm like, well, of course it was, you know, that's what always happens. Some, you know, he's indisposed. Okay, well, he's on his way. He's on suspension or whatever. Um, so, and, and, and you could kind of tell that his replacement, who I thought did a great job in a tough, tough situation, um, seemed like there was added stress about the whole thing kind of in retrospect, but hindsight's 2020 and, you know, who knows, but, but yeah, we were there and it had, you know, that was, it had to be right around the time this was all coming out internally. Yeah. And according to one of the newspaper articles, it was January, 2008 when Alan Lowe, who's executive director of the museum, he was verbally told about the 2013 report. So I guess, or I'm led to believe based on what the articles have said is that he didn't know prior to that. So, you know, I don't know. I guess, you know, being that he's a government employee, the newspapers have been trying to get um, the paperwork on it. They got something, um, but it was like all like marked out, like all the reasons to why um, he was forced out or fired. So I don't know if we'll ever find out exactly. Um, you know, Dr. Cornelius, Alan Lowe, um, you know, whoever has a role in all this, you want to be on a rail splitter and break some cutting edge news. Uh, yeah. Just email us, <laughs> shoot us a text, shoot us a tweet. Yeah. Uh, yes. Facebook us, Facebook message us. Yeah. And, and I just want to make sure like the, the museum is a wonderful place. We talked about it a couple episodes ago on our Springfield episode. And I don't think that this long term, you know, hopefully the collection stays intact. Um, but I think that this hopefully is just a roadblock, you know, in, in a pretty successful uh, path that the museum has taken. Certainly recently, um, it does strike me as um, I don't know if I want to say alarming, but um, to have someone who was suspended, like someone who's in such an important position in the world of Lincoln, uh, to have multiple suspensions um, and then to be fired in this way, and they're really tight-lipped about everything. Um, I, you know, I, it's not like I'm not a gossip person. I don't care, you know, I don't care about what he said to whom, you know, any, any more than, than I should. Um, but it would be nice to know, like, are there issues with any of the artifacts? Is every, is the collection intact? Um, the, the, does this have anything to do with the, the fact that they, they were going to sell stuff and they weren't going to sell stuff? Are they not selling it because they can't verify it anymore? Are they not selling it because it's not quite the same collection that they purchased because of something happened? Um, or was he just not very nice to work with and they wanted to move on? Um, all I can say definitively with is that in the hour and a half that we spent with Dr. Cornelius, he was very gracious, very accommodating, extremely knowledgeable and passionate about Lincoln. I am not naive enough to make a judgment about anybody, but I'm not naive, certainly not somebody who I've spent a grand total of 90 minutes with. Um, I'm sure that there's quite a lot to these stories, you know. So um, when he was with us, he was great. Um, I'm not 
naive enough to think that that's how he is all the time, certainly. So, and it sounds like he was pretty difficult to work with. Um, I, I'm just concerned about, you know, any potential problems that um, the collection experienced because of this. Um, and also, I, you know, I think the members of the museum perhaps could have been communicated with a little bit better. Like they, they send me emails all the time about, you know, wanting me to donate more money and to invite me to events and stuff, which is nice. Um, but we, we got to keep in mind, though, that this is the foundation, which is separate from the museum. Right. So it is the foundation that holds the hat. It's the foundation that needs the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and they work with the museum. So, you know, the museum, obviously, with Cornelius and how this whole FBI thing played out, obviously, the museum, um, some blame there. But as far as the money and stuff, it's the foundation. Uh, that's the ones that are. I think have really the questions to answer more than anybody Mm -hmm. in this scenario. Right. And now in his title though, was the curator of the Lincoln collection, right? Is that. Yeah. I don't know how his, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because I mean, they're, they're very much branches of the same tree. I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know if they are officially, but the stuff in the museum is from the, the collection. I mean, it's, you know, it's next, it's, it's housed next door, all of the temperature controlled, uh, rooms and storage spaces and, you know, the, the, the scores and scores of Lincoln documents are all housed there. So does the, so does the foundation own all the artifacts and the museum is strictly in charge of putting them on display then? That's a good question. I thought that they were all together. Um, and, and I apologize, listeners, for not having a better answer for that. Um, we are obviously not professional journalists, but we are journalist enthusiasts. No, and this is, yeah, we're editorializing here for this because that's what podcasts do. Um, so on the, if you go to the ALPLM, Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Museum, AL, ALPLM.org, the logo is the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Foundation. Um, all right. So all right. that gotcha. and it's and the logo is literally Abraham Lincoln's uh, face in front of the museum, not in front of the library, but in front of the museum. So I believe it's all the same entity. Um, mm-hmm. And oh. yeah, and so I think that it's yeah about the foundation. I can kind of look it up. So I apologize for. Kind of looking up, but the Abraham Lincoln uh, Presidential Library Foundation is a private organization with a mission to support the exhibits and programs of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. So I, you know, how separate they really are, I don't think they're all that separate. Um, and then the rest of it refers to it as the ALPLM. The ALPLM not only preserves history, it makes history by enabling millions of visitors from around the globe to experience the Lincoln story in its entirety as nowhere else. Uh, so I do think that the two, um, it says, uh, gener- generous donations from individuals and private organizations support the foundation's role in sponsoring museum and library exhibits, speakers, scholarship opportunities. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's basically the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. And being a member of the museum, like, like, I mean, they, I get emails every time, you know, we get, we can go in a couple of days ahead of time when they bring the hat out, you can go in, you know, when they have new display, new, um, you know, rotating exhibits, you can go in a couple of days early. Like there are some perks of being a member. I'm happy to be a member. 
Um, but I would think that of all of the email groups and social media groups they have, they would have emailed the museum members and just said, hey, there's going to be a change in, you know, and I'm like I said, I'm not looking for gossip, but there's going to be a change in the, the curatorship um, because we're moving on from Dr. Cornelius. Um, because he's quite a name. He really is. He's, he's established himself as a pretty significant figure in the Lincoln world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a guy who was like, who would do the news appearances. Uh, you know, he, he was the, yeah, the talking head behind it as well as the man in charge. So yeah. Um, I was looking for the employment opportunity, uh, page on that website and I, I didn't see it. So, um, I don't know. Mary, you got a you going to go for the job? You got a back. Sure, yeah, I totally got the call. <laughs> you're, you're Civil War fangirl. You got a huge Twitter following. I think I think you have a leg up because like what they lacked in Dr. Cornelius, like you have in Spades. So like you're like, yeah, I I won't yell at anyone. <laughs> you know, like like especially like it said like museum patrons even like I granted, I'll say it again. We're only with him for like an hour and a half, but I like he if there's a stereotype for a museum curator, he embodied it when we were with him. He's like very mild, soft-spoken, um, bookish kind of looking, if that's not offensive. You know, like he looks like a history museum curator. <laughs> you know, if there's a way to picture that, that's what he looks so like. I was having a hard time like, what did he, how, what was he even like when he was going off on people? I can't even picture how that would even be. Um, but apparently, uh, you know, and I think sometimes that comes with passion too. He's so passionate about the collection in Lincoln. It's probably stressful when you see people not installing exhibits exactly how you thought they should be, should be. Um, but he's, you know, it's a public position. You got to carry yourself in a certain way. I kind of feel like angry curators also, that could be a typical stereotype too. Like grouchy, like kind of grouchy librarian. I kind of feel like crouchy curator i'm reading them like yeah i can see that possibly but yeah he was extremely nice i was kind of hard trying to imagine him yelling um at least he was nice to us uh when we were down there so uh yeah it's this is just crazy i I mean you know like all it does though is one of these artifacts to be tarnished like this that kind of puts the collection all at risk um which is unfortunate um it's going to lead to other questions um, I saw a quote, sometimes you got to make a leap of faith, you know, with these artifacts. Yeah, I could see that when you have it in your family history. Mm-hmm. But when you're a museum putting it on display, you know, I, I like to think it's a little bit more than a leap of faith. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe a step over a crack I could live with. Um, but, you know, a leap of faith is might be a little too much if you're going to display it in the manner um that you're going to, especially when there's already two that seem to be very um, much verified out there in the world. Yeah, and as a museum, you have to be able to prove that provenance and prove that it's, um, you know, it is what it is, especially if you're getting, you know, taxpayers' money and you're having people come through to see these big items. Um, The one example I can think of from the museum here, um, it was years ago, I think I was about 12 years old, so many years ago, they had a Titanic exhibit come through from a private collector, and the guy gave a talk, and he had all these artifacts that were supposedly from the Titanic. Well, about a year after they had the exhibit, it turned out that it was all fake. Oh. It was like, you know, and, and the museum had to answer for that, too, 
but the documents that the guy had given the curator at the time, you know, it was like, okay, this stuff is real, you know, but that's like a traveling exhibit. So it's not, it's when you have it in your collection, you've, you know, you do have to be able to prove that, but then sometimes it's hard depending on who it's coming from too. You know, like they were lucky that wasn't a permanent collection. It was just a traveling collection. I mean, it happens like people, you know, will have documentation that says, oh, this is what it is. And it's really not, but you know, it, it's just the one thing I learned was visitors will ask where something is from and they, if they're paying admission, they do have a right to know, you know? Yeah. So if I, go ahead. if I have a document, I like, let's say I have an artifact, I bring it in. Mm-hmm. Mary, in your experience, like what type of documentation do I need for the museum to put it on display? If it's, you know, if it's just a simple artifact, then, you know, they just take down kind of like what you know about it, what your family's known about it, like where it's from and how it was used and the connection to how it relates to the museum's mandate, which in the case of, you know, the museums I worked at, which were county museums, you know, it had just to be connected to that county. Um, Something more than, you know, something from an appraiser. You know, and sometimes the museum will go out and get it appraised itself to see if it is that way. Um, but yeah, it's basically a lot of it is just trust too. Well, and I like I think that just in general, and part of this falls on us as educators, like there shouldn't be anything wrong with telling people just what it is. Like we mm-hmm. think this is what we're saying it is. Here's the evidence we have to support it. Here's the, here's why it may not be. So it probably is, you know, like this, like whole idea that we have to deal in absolutes and like it either, you know, I understand that it either is or it isn't, but like when you're talking about very old artifacts, um, just present it for what it is. Like I have no problem going to museums where it says like, this may have been like, cool. It's from the same era. That's what it looked like. I can picture Abraham Lincoln or a union soldier or something using this. Um, and I am as a museum patron, I feel I'm capable of uh, deciding for myself, like, do I want to accept this as it is? Or, you know, how do I want to process that? Um, and it also kind of opens the door for continual research. Like we Mm -hmm. once thought this actually belonged to Abraham Lincoln, but we found out that we got more evidence and it turned out it wasn't like, that's interesting to me also. Um, yeah. That those types of stories are, are interesting. And, you know, it's kind of like, um, you can say like there, he would have owned something similar to this. And here's an example of what it, it looked like. And then people can have a visual of that. Mm-hmm. And the whole- I, I agree with you both like a hundred percent, but I think the issue that we're running into with this situation is They've been using this as the prize item mm-hmm. to get money. Mm-hmm. And then it's gotten to the point where they were actually appealing to, you know, basically the Illinois taxpayer to help foot the bill for this. And using this as a selling point, that is what's wrong. And that's what's starting to tarnish. Or, um, you know, th- they got to do some PR work here, you know, to kind of get the um, thing. Because, I mean, this isn't just something that was covered in the you know, the newspaper down in Springfield, Illinois. This this wasn't just, you know, local news. You know, this is national news. New York Times, um, you know, had articles on this. So, um, and this is a museum too. That gets people from all over the world come there. So, you know, you don't want negative PR um, coming around um, for that. So, 
that, that's the problem. Like, I think you could make like a cool exhibit perhaps around this, like, you know, tell the story of how this came, you know, that we thought this was Lincoln's, this wasn't. It'd be a great piece for students to come and learn how history works and the verification and, you know, using documents and sources to figure that stuff. I think that could be an awesome, like one no, of those trampling okay. exhibits they do. Yeah, for sure. Um, I do. And I also think that it's in just an interesting concept because I'm obsessed with this kind of stuff. Um, and I love going to museums and seeing things. And it's like gives me chills to say to, to be a, a pane of glass away from, you know, like anything that Lincoln touched. But then you think about it and it's like, why is that like that's a weird thing about human psychology? Why do we think that's so cool? You know, I love it. I can't get enough of it. I'm like, it is like, so what? <laughs> like that is, you know, like what he did was so immense and so important. And, you know, but like the fact that that was something that belonged to him, like, you know, a pocket watch or a pen, you know, why do I care so much? Um, and that's, just, I think that's just, that's just kind of an interesting psychological thing that, that human beings have that, are, you know, that, you know, some more than others, but why are we so obsessed with these random objects um, that would mean so, so much. And then if it's proven like, oh, you know what, actually that wasn't Abraham Lincoln's just like, oh God, what a piece of garbage, you know, it's just this pen or whatever, you know, like it's it, the, the value that we assign to these things is so huge. Um, to me, it's Shit, just, I think you know, the half by, sorry, mm. I think the hat by itself is just cool. Yeah. It's like, beaver, you know, hat, you know, it's it, unique. Uh, you don't see many hats like that anymore, so it's just kind of a badass hat. Yeah, no, it's a neat thing to have in it. You know, it's like, and when they did display it, Jeremy, you did say they did say like they're sort of they're sure they're not quite sure of the province, like you know, mm -hmm. it was his, which is good to do too. It's a great example, you know, of what he he would have worn. And I'm the same as you when I go to, you know, when I see something associated with him, I'm totally like I don't want to leave it. Mm -hmm. and it's it was that way for me at the smithsonian when they have they have the hat there and i spent probably 15 minutes near it went around looked at more stuff and then i went back one more time to have a look at it hey the good news is that they're selling this hat it's now probably closer to our price range <laughs> so um yeah i'm just saying it's worth a shot so um Wonder so yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this story plays out and like, you know, are they going to continue to try to sell this money? Are they going to get a extension on the money that they owe? Um, what happens if they default on that? You know, like, are they going to take the collection back? Was it, you know, what sort of, you know, is it now devalued in some way? Um, and the other thing too is, I think they're still they're still digitizing a lot of the collection as far as the written stuff, and there's there's a lot of stuff in the collection that's not real well known that they haven't really published a lot of, um, and they don't put very much of it out very often. It's definitely the way that they have the museum set up is things come out for short periods of time and it's always different and it's always kind of surprising. And you get the feeling like there's so much in this collection that it'll take a lifetime of trips to the museum to, to really discover it all, which I think is a good thing. So um, if it was put out in this giant warehouse of a museum where you looked at all these artifacts one right after the other, they would lose their power, I think, in many ways. 
Um, and it would also be appealing to, to people like us and probably not a whole lot of other folks. Um, you so, know, if this was a Fillmore hat, there'd be no controversy because nobody would give a shit. It'd be worth no one will take this hat. Hands. Why won't anyone take this hat? Here, have a, it's Fillmore a presidential hat. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So, um, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, I do think uh, I did want to kind of at least mention. I found it to be fascinating that. Like like the Abraham Lincoln Forum on Facebook, uh, in particular, but a couple other places I saw, there were like people going back and forth about like there were two sides on this. Like one one person said he's a true Lincoln man, he's he wouldn't take crap from anybody. Totally, you know, let him have it. Like like you know, playing him up as if he was like fighting the man, and like fighting for what's right in the museum, and they were trying to keep him down. And then of course there's other people who are like you know, serves him right, the jerk or whatever. So like, you know, and I'm, and I'm not informed enough to make a call one way or the other by any means. Um, other than just to say Dr. Cornelius and also everyone else I've ever talked to at the museum has been nothing but pleasant. Um, including some of the people who may have been wronged by him. And I think we're kind of, um, we're named or at least implied in the newspaper article. I think that there are some folks who we've talked to in various ways that probably, know a little bit more about this and we're probably like yeah it's probably a good thing um but anyway it was kind of fun to fun just to watch people going back and forth on comment threads like a real lincoln man or he got what was coming to him and <laughs> you know I'm like wow this is a weird little internal debate about a very you know in the you know generally speaking a fairly obscure issue but um, i think we should set up a lincoln douglas uh format and actually have the debate out <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be like you did these things. No, I didn't. All right. Well, um, you gotta yeah. prepare it. An hour, an hour opening statement, followed by what was it? A half hour? Half right? hour rebuttal. Yeah. <laughs> God. Yeah. It's yeah. been. I mean, I found it fascinating and interesting too to see it unfold. I, I honestly was shocked when I read he when well when I got the text message from Nick saying he'd been fired and. Like, yeah, I, you know, who knows what circumstances it was under and, just, yeah. you know, there's always two sides to every story and maybe sometime he'll come forward and tell his side of it. But I think the fact yeah. that he hasn't might be telling, I don't know, like mm -hmm. in a very small way, I work for a public institution as well. And when I've seen firings of this kind, I've never, it would be extremely rare for it to be mere accusation. You know, like it's for someone in a public position where there's like a public board and it's publicly funded, uh, tend to be, and I know that this, that the, the foundation itself is private, but the state has quite a lot of oversight, but just the way that this whole thing went down felt very similarly to when like high ranking school officials have had issues, you know, it's just very rarely is there that much smoke without any fire. Yeah. Well, plus if he can, uh, you know, he, he gets fired here, but if he makes a big scene, he probably has no chance of getting a curator job, you know, a well-established curator job. So, you know, there's part of that too. Um, and it all, I mean, there's always Phil Morris library, I'm sure. Yeah. So, Yep. So it'll be yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting to see who uh, ends up replacing him. So, um, it's gonna be Mary. Yeah. Totally. There you go. All right. Hashtag <laughs> Mary for curator. Rail splitter Mary for curator. That's our new hashtag. Everybody tweet it like it's hot. 
She's never been to Springfield, but damn it, never. if she gets there, she'll be staying there. I never thought I'd be moving there. We'll, we'll weather through the Canadian controversy. People will be hating on Canada, but we can handle that. We'll get through There's it. There's already a Canadian, though, at the museum. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. So... All right, so uh, we do want to get on to our weekly feature. Our first one is of the people by the people, where we talk about a social media post that resonated with us this week. Mary or Nick, who would like to go first? I could go first. Anybody going once, going twice? I'm looking mine up. What it's gonna? Uh, yeah, I'm looking mine up too. All right. Well, I um, I, I say this every week. Um, oh man. Okay, I'm just gonna go with this one. Um, Originally, this is a this is a, I can't believe I'm going to give you this huge uh, compliment. So in my notifications, it says in case you missed Icky Tangy's tweet, and then it puts the text of his tweet. I'm like, holy cow, that is great! I'm going to share that on here because this is so like not real Splitter Nick, very much like the real Nick. So then I click on it. It has his little uh, his little picture, and it says, "In case you miss Icky Tangy's tweet." And then I click on it. He had re- retweeted Barack Obama. So the first time <laughs> yeah. that Barack Obama's words were confused for Nick Stangy, and, it, and I, I'll admit it, but I still like it very much. Uh, so it turned out that it was actually Barack Obama's tweet that you retweeted, which I'm all for. Uh, President Obama said the antidote to government by the powerful few is government by the organized, energized many. This National Voter Registration Day, which was yesterday, uh, make sure you're registered, vote early if you can, or show up on November 6th. This moment is too important to sit out. So uh, yesterday in the United States it was National Voter Registration Day. Please, I hope, I hope, hope, hope people don't misunderstand that to mean that's the only day. You can register whenever you want. Um, but yeah, register to vote if you have not. I'm imagining if you listen to this podcast, you probably are a registered voter. Um, I am a big, big proponent of getting young people to register to vote. Um, so we do something at the school. We make sure everyone who's 18 by November 6th registers. Um, make sure that you know that you know what your rights are to vote. Um, and I'm also a huge proponent, um, and I want to make it a thing. I think it's very important that people vote with their kids. Um, I've, every time I can, I take my kids to the polls, um, because no one ever taught me how to vote. Um, which sounds weird, you know, but like, it is somewhat intimidating to go and know what to do, you know, and kind of know how to fill it out. So I think, I think kids should vote with their parents and then, or with anyone just to see how the process works. So vote with your kids if you can. Um, and we are working very much on teaching kids how to vote. And civic duty was always taught to me from a very young age. But, like, the, the literal mechanics of voting, you kind of have to figure out on your own, which is silly. So um, I think we should change that. So anyway, Nick, I'm glad you retweeted President Obama and I was able to read it. That was my No problem. No problem. <laughs> um, well, I can go next. Uh, I'm going to give the shout-out to Eric Lee. Uh, he got me going on this. Like I said, I... Saw the notification. We got something new in the Facebook page. Saw it. Um, so it was great. He shared the article. Good conversations on there, as we mentioned. So shout out to him uh, for giving us this idea to roll with this episode this week. So, yeah, join the Facebook page if you're not part of that. And then when you're done reading that stuff, jump on over to the uh, Apple uh, iTunes and drop a review on us. You know, drop us a five, four and a half star review. So, 
Okay, and mine this week uh, comes to us from Lincoln Belongs to the Ages. Uh, today he tweeted, 170 years ago, Lincoln meets Whig Party VP candidate Millard Fillmore. Uh. <laughs> I retweeted it just for Nick, too. Future President of the United States number 13 meets future holders number 16, most likely in Albany, New York. What a clown. I said, Is that so the one that, you tweeted the other day? Or is this um, the second no, one? No, that's, that, that's the second one. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln, yeah, he, uh, he actually met quite a few former presidents. Um, and I think part of it's because there were so many one-termers, like we talked about last weekend, that there were, or last week, that there were a lot of presidents to, to, to meet. <laughs> um, but he gave a tour of Springfield to Martin Van Buren. Um, of course, he met, I'm sure he met Polk when he was in the House and Polk was um, president. Uh, clearly, he met Fillmore, met Buchanan, obviously, uh, Andrew Johnson, Grant, um, probably maybe Garfield and McKinley. They were both Civil War generals. So um, I'm sure there's a list out there of all the presidents, former and future, that Abraham Lincoln met. But uh, there were quite a few of them. Uh, our of the or not that our this week in Lincoln. This week I'm going to take a step away from the plethora of uh, Lincoln T-shirts I saw in Springfield uh, to talk about a text I got from a huge fan of. The Rail Splitter, definitely part of Rail Splitter Nation, which is my mother. Um, she is on an Alaskan cruise right now as we speak, and she took time out of her trip to text me some pictures of a totem pole with Abraham Lincoln at the top of it. And there's another one with our favorite Secretary of State at the top of it, who, of course, we mispronounce as... Seward. Seward. So William Seward, of course, purchased Alaska at during the Johnson administration, um, which was dubbed Seward's Folly, and it turned out not to be a folly at all because um, future generations could crush the environment by drilling oil up there, um, and uh, it became very lucrative. But uh, the totem poles, totem poles, by the way, um, very sacred and important pieces for indigenous people. Um in the United States and Canada, and the fact that uh, that this this is not like a, um, I don't think it's like a kitschy kind of touristy thing. It's like an actual, real, respectful thing that they've placed him on the top of this totem pole. So it's quite an honor to be on a totem pole, and Seward and Lincoln are on a totem pole there in Alaska, which is which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, um, you learned a little bit about totem poles and knew that there was one in Alaska. In Ketchikan, Alaska, in the Saxman Native area, um, and the other one is of William Seward. Um, so yeah, I think maybe not. The text message. Maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's Fillmore. It's definitely not Fillmore. No, it's Seward. Um, so yeah. Um, Cool. If they put Fillmore on a totem pole, it'd be on the part that's buried. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, thank you once again for tuning in this week. We will absolutely get back to the 1864 election next week. Uh, we still got quite a lot of coverage on that, including the presidential election itself, the general election, um, and then, of course, uh, what that meant for the Union cause in the Civil War, for the direction of the country in general politically, uh, political appointments, things like that, um, and the start of the second term. Until then, for Rail Splitter Mick, Nick and Rail Splitter Mary, I am Rail Splitter Jeremy, reminding you to continue to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. 
and we'll see you next week.